From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Undercurrent. Hello, and welcome to The Undercurrent. This is Season 12, Episode 7. Here at Michigan State University, students and staff are on the move constantly. Our campus is massive, which means that someone is always on their way to someplace or from somewhere. Maybe a class or a club or an internship, maybe work. Who knows? We've all got stuff going on back to back to back to back. Today, we've got stories about the stuff you're working on and how you're getting there. So we're calling this one Going Green and dedicating it to all you movers and shakers. Up first, Taylor Halterman covered the advent of gotcha scooters on Michigan State's campus. Here's that story. If you are a resident of Lansing, East Lansing, or are a student at Michigan State University, you have probably noticed the black and teal scooters lined up around the sidewalks. But with all the confusion around delays, new rules, and which brands can go where, do you really know how to use them? I don't have a a problem with competition. I think in these situations, people who don't have the same set of rules uh, and are following that are confusing to the users. And I think MSU went through a pretty detailed process to pick a partner um, so that they can rightfully so kind of control their campus and make sure it's orderly. Um, So I think you have somebody else who doesn't have the same rules uh, of operation. There's a real risk that it's going to cause confusion. Um, So I I think that's the real challenge. In my experience, CEO of Gotcha Sean Flood's concerns about confusion hit the nail on the head. Almost every student I've spoken to about e-scooters has been confused by some aspect. So here's what you need to know. Gotcha officially announced the release of around 300 e-scooters on campus and the surrounding communities in a press release on Friday, October 11th. Many of the scooters had been dropped off and available for use a few days prior. However, at that time, the Gotcha app was only showing a couple of scooters had been released on MSU grounds. To remedy this problem, Gotcha has announced the release of the new Gotcha Scooters app. This app is separate from the original Gotcha app and can be found on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. You'll know it's the right one when the app on your home screen is teal. Gotcha Scooters can be used to locate scooters and hubs and unlock scooters, which costs $1.15 for every minute of ride time after. Gotcha is a mobility brand that does more than just e-scooters. They also have electric bikes, trikes, and an electric ride-sharing vehicle. Flood said we could potentially see some of these products come to the MSU area, provided the initial scooter launch is successful. We, we spent a lot of time working with MSU and working with Lansing and East Lansing to come up with a partnership. Uh, sometimes that takes time, uh, which is, is why it has taken a while to get the system live back on campus. Um, but that partnership approach is intentional because we don't want this to just be there for uh, six months and then go away. You know, and we also don't want it to just be scooters. We want to lay the groundwork to bring in our electric bikes, which could happen as early as you know next semester. And uh, we're working with the university from an engineering and kind of research standpoint to come up with better ideas and new products. You must be at least 18 years old to ride a gotcha scooter, and their website encourages the use of a helmet. The scooters will also be shut down during MSU home football games for safety reasons. Those riding on Michigan State's campus must obey the new mobility device ordinance. 
According to MSUPD, the scooters on campus must be parked in the designated hubs, which can be seen on the app, and are essentially white rectangles on the sidewalks. They can also be parked in any moped parking area. Parking a scooter outside of these designated areas can result in a fine. Uh, so in the beginning, there's going to be a real education. You, there will be fees associated with parking outside of one of those mobility hubs. We've got a 24-hour kind of rider experience team who will talk to users to educate them. But our hope is that those hubs are so easy to increase in size uh, and, and volume that we can easily start adding scooters so that you can park a place and then be able to walk a very short distance to class or your dorm or wherever that may be. Um, but I do think the idea of just dropping them somewhere causes a lot of larger long-term problems. A big one being, I think students want this to last. And if people start to get frustrated that these scooters are left everywhere, even by like small numbers of students who aren't paying attention, it's easy for them to say, okay, no more scooters. The scooters must also be driven in the bike lanes or on the right-hand side of the drive lanes when there is no bike lane available, not the sidewalks. E-scooters are prohibited from entering any building on campus, so there will be no charging them inside. But you won't need to charge them anyway because Gotcha has a local team responsible for the charging and maintenance. The full MSU Mobility Device Ordinance can be found on the MSU Board of Trustees website and will be linked in the description of this episode. People scooting around East Lansing must also obey the new City Electric Scooter Ordinance. This includes not going over 10 miles per hour on the sidewalks, parking the scooter upright with at least 5 feet of unobstructed sidewalk, and not interfering with things like bike lanes, crosswalks, streets, and benches, among others. This whole ordinance can be found on cityofeastlansing.com and will also be linked in the description of this episode. The exclusive contract Gotcha obtained with MSU also contained a research element. This will involve collecting anonymous data on traffic density, safe driving practices, parking, and the impact of this type of transportation on our society, according to the press release. When the university mentioned, it wasn't our idea, when the university said, hey, we want to have a research component to this partnership, I think our entire kind of team's eyes lit up uh, because that's, that's fantastic to be able to engage students and faculty and staff and really get their ideas on shared mobility, I think that's going to be instrumental. And because MSU has this exclusive contract with Gotcha, that means no other rideshare e-scooters can be parked on campus. For example, once you cross over the campus border on a lime, the app will notify you that you could be fined and that you cannot park there. Flood said Gotcha originally started out 10 years ago as a rideshare company specifically for college campuses, and has grown from that original idea into the transit company it is today. What I've learned and what what has kind of grown out of the company over the past 10 years is that people truly don't want to ride in single passenger automobiles. And this generation and this demographic is really interested in sharing of assets. So we've always had a sustainable mission, but I really think it was the the riders who really had to kind of catch up to that. And we now find ourselves in this really unique position that if you have electric bikes and scooters and so on and so forth, you can decrease the reliance on single passenger cars. And then as a result, we think that allows people to live kind of healthier, happier lives. So I think it's it's been an evolution of it, not just us wanting to do it, but having a community, uh, and in this case, students who really embrace it and want a better form of transportation that isn't a car.
For Impact Student Radio, I'm Taylor Holterman. That was reporter Taylor Holterman with the information you need to know about electric scooters in the Lansing area. Coming up, reporter Nick Sava has a story about the Student Greenhouse Project. But first, Impact Managing Editor Josiah Leach has a few music news updates. Josiah Leach here with some music news. Legendary 2000s rock band My Chemical Romance announced on October 31st that they were reuniting. After disbanding in 2013, they wrote a note to their fans saying, quote, My Chemical Romance is done, but it can never die. It is alive in me, in the guys, and it is alive inside all of you. I always knew that, and I think you did too, because it is not a band. It is an idea. This Halloween, they announced a reunion show, which will be held at the Shrine Expo Hall in Los Angeles on Friday, December 20th. A few interesting side stories came from this piece of news. The first is that the Jonas Brothers seem to have accidentally spoiled the surprise earlier this year by mentioning that the band was rehearsing in a studio next to them. My Chemical Romance denied this at the time, but now we know it's true. The second side story is that podcaster and stand-up comedian Joe Rogan confirmed recently that Gerard Way, the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, is his cousin. And that's today's music news. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Josiah Leach. Have a great week. Welcome back. You're listening to WDBM East Lansing, and this is The Undercurrent. Our final story is about the Student Greenhouse Project. Reporter Nick Saba talked to a handful of students and staff working on this project to make it a reality. Here's his piece. I walk into the room amidst chatter from students majoring in engineering, biology, architecture, marketing, and even communications. They're all here with one organization with only one goal in mind. The Student Greenhouse Project is here on MSU's campus to help build the Biodome. I went to one of the meetings to learn more about the Biodome, what it is, and what the different people are working towards in achieving their goals. I wanted to know and figure out what drew such a diversive group of people towards completing one task. Student Greenhouse Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a biodome, which will be a tropical oasis on campus and in a closed space, a geodesic dome. Um, well, basically, we have about four or five different groups that focus on different um, parts of the project. Um, the group I'm in, Flora and Fauna, um, decides which plants and animals are going to work best within the biodome. Uh, we have an operations group that like helps execute things. We have a marketing group that helps with outreach, and then another um, group, um, engineering that like develops the details of the dome. I'm the uh, op- operations leader. The operations team is is a new group this year that's focused on. Uh, really driving home the strategy of making the project happen. So my, I am the team lead of visuals, which is responsible for coming up with some a mix of marketing and informational images that will show people what it is we're about. So I do, I kind of bounce between the marketing team and the operations team and marketing. I help run some of the social media. The, I guess the students in the student greenhouse project are what I found to be very driven. Uh, We get a lot done around here in 
a very short amount of time. They were passing out flyers for it, and I thought it looked pretty cool. I've been on the border recently between architecture and zoology. I've wanted to do zoology my whole life, but lately I've been thinking a lot about architecture and engineering, and I thought this was a good way to incorporate both of them and see what aspect of it I would enjoy more. Uh, I guess it's really just getting to see uh, nature in a place where there is usually snow and getting to like also have animals there and just kind of chill in nature, like, but inside from nature, if that even makes sense. Because I really see the impact that this facility could have on, on campus and on society at large. And also about legacy, I'd say. Um, you know, I want to leave like a lasting mark on campus before I leave. It's a really cool project to me. Um, I've always been really interested in sustainable design and I think that the biodome is the perfect merging um, between my passion for engineering and um, biology. Like it would be such a significant aspect of Michigan State if it were to happen. I know I thought it was a really interesting project. I thought it was a really cool idea so I wanted to see what it was about and now I just keep coming back. <laughs> After the meeting I went up to the director of the student greenhouse project and asked if he would like to come in for an interview. He readily agreed. I am Philip Lamoureux. I am the uh, director of the student greenhouse project and its RSO advisor. And I've been with the project not since the very beginning, but uh, very close to it. I hoped he would be able to answer more of the questions I have about the project, as well as the timeline of how it came to be. So what exactly is the Student Greenhouse Project? Well, the Student Greenhouse Project is an effort to rebuild a tropical garden biodome here on campus. Uh, it started long ago with protest marches over losing the butterfly house, and we've been pushing to bring the university's golden promise into fruition ever since um, a student meeting where we got that promise back in um, 1997. So you've been, you've been at this for a while to try to, to bring back what the Butterfly House was. Yes. And actually, I was there at that meeting. The Greenhouse Project formed at that meeting. They submitted a proposal in February of 98. Uh, the university got on board with the whole vision. Um, and just, just quickly, for people that, that don't really know, can you kind of explain what the, the Butterfly House was? Well, what it really was, was it was horticulture's old facility that had been left behind when they got the new crop and soil science building. Botany, which has now become plant biology, had only the little bitty thing. And this was like a 22,000 square foot greenhouse. It was very, very large. It filled the entire space next to the, that open square next to the um, fountain that's behind student services building. And so that whole thing was full of greenhouse and botany got to move in there little by little with uh, partnering with the Orchid Society and then with the entomology department and they put in a butterfly house and they put in a, a fish pond in a subtropical area. A lot of things were going on there. There was um, poetry readings, little, little concerts, some small dinners and lots of you know, people spending time roaming through and enjoying the green and, and just checking out stuff. It was a respite place. Uh, I had a friend who was once the, uh, um, the College of Natural Science Department's editor, and he was 
said he was late night writing up the Natural Science magazine one evening, and it was like four in the morning in February when he finally got it done. And he was just like sagging in his chair with his arms dangling. He said, I got a key to the greenhouse because at some point earlier he'd been one of the uh, proprietors. And so he got up out of Natsai and walked over there and went in and sat with the steam pipes banging and a few little lights on in the mist around the plants, and then a blizzard hit. And he said it was such a surreal point to be that tired, up that late, and in this greenhouse full of plants with the you know intermittent sort of lighting scattered around in the dark of the night, with the pounding of the blizzard and the little visibility of the snow smacking and, and just burying the place. That experience in, in specific is one that we're working to bring uh, back to everybody's experience. Our most recent blender um, renditions show the dome sitting out on its space at the end of Shaw Hall, uh, surrounded by a snowscape. And um, the most recent addition to that blender uh, visual is the snow coming down. They've got it animated with an active snowstorm. And so indeed, uh, we want people to be sitting on a gray day, looking out at the, the uh, tremendous contrast of their warmth, uh, sitting against the, the rock cliff face, which may have absorbed some of the day's solar warmth, and, and see the, uh, the day gray over and the, st the snow start. So specifically that is being visualized now for future experience. So then what what happened to the the butterfly house to begin with? Like why why did it end up going away? It was 70 years old at that point and the wood was sort of decaying. And so horticulture got a new place. And then botany moved in there, but in the meantime the way the university works, those uh, facilities, those structures had been um, designated as abandoned. One of the first professors who was doing this was a professor Bromley, and I am told that because of his collaboration with the Orchid Society, which he thought was pretty upscale and might help his case, he was able to put a, a beautiful orchid on like every administrator's desk during his ploy to try and get this facility, you know, renovated and up again. But the, the abandoned designation was very stubborn. And with that on there, the university would release no reconstruction and renovation funds. So what happened was the place itself aged out. And because it didn't get any recitation money so that there was no work on its maintenance, that condition that it was in sort of snowballed and it went downhill. So then what exactly is the biodome? Like, what is, how is it different from the, the butterfly house? What makes it special? Well, as I said, we got this golden promise from the university, and it was our aspiration to build something back there that would really encapsulate all the uses the old facility had, which was all the events and the, and the students studying and getting relaxation and, and roaming around in little circles and, and enjoying the space. And then, like I say, the, the, the you know, weddings, concerts, plays, and sort of stuff that in the old production-style greenhouse, which is sort of short and square and rectangular, in a rectangle, you can't do a lot. Whereas with the 
50-yard biodome, the 150-foot half a football field plan that we have, you get the space of the subtropical, the tropical, and and the, the facility from before all sort of melded into one round, uh, warm space like a big hug. I love that explanation of that, actually. Just kind of like the idea of it being kind of a sanctuary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and sort of a refuge from the winter for everybody here during the long school year, a sanctuary from plants around the world, uh, an amelioration of homesickness for all the international students who come from the, the middle belt of the planet who we hope will find some plant from home waiting there as a reminder. So as I was alluding to, what I was getting to was that one of the differences between the old greenhouse with flat floors and square rectangular design was that we have the round structure which we are planning to put inside contouring that will make it like a small tropical valley. It'll literally have a horseshoe-shaped north ridge pointed toward the south, so it's open toward the sun, and it's created by reburying and putting the contours over the workroom and the offices, the conference room and the community room slash study lounge. And so now you have high ground um, that a 14-foot waterfall can bubble up in a spring and then cascade over the lip of and down into a plunge pool there. Then the, the stream will run 80 foot down to a, a 40-foot pond uh, with fish and you know frogs and little water lilies and different things. You're able to actually curve around so that with the plants really thick, there's this around the bend sort of mystery. You know, even though it's you know only a half football field size, it will be able to immerse you know a couple hundred people in there, and you won't have the straight look through quality like you know down the row or down the aisle because it'll keep curving around and it'll be thick and full of all kinds of plants and little things moving and catching your attention. And, um, and it actually provides the full length of that sort of big S-curve with a little switchback and everything to get up over the 14-foot waterfall, cross a bridge over the canyon, uh, and then get up on top of the study lounge for sort of an overlook over the little valley, and it's fully accessible. So while there are some staircases coming down from that main route at different points, anybody with any sort of uh, mobility uh, constraints or other sorts of uh, predominant sense modalities can enjoy the facility uh, in, a, in, a, in a full experience. So we're, we're designing it fully ADA compliant. We're hoping that it will be lead gold to maybe lead platinum as far as its environmental uh, standards. And it's designed to really have people spend time there. Lots of little niches, activities immersed in the plants. You know, if there's a an event going on like a, a play, you know, someone can enter a stage left from out of the bushes. To me, it seems like the real the real thing that you're trying to go for is that instead of being in like a normal greenhouse and like having being surrounded by things that are that are alive, you want the whole dome itself to be like an active entity. Like mm-hmm. you want the building to be to feel alive. Yes. So like you said, we're really trying to make a living place. And what we're doing is we're trying to turn back the clock. So right now we're proceeding into sort of a unanticipated adventure. There may be subtle components to our life on this planet that we are adventuring away from 
in our own blindness to some necessities, some necessary inputs to our mental health and well-being in particular. So we're slowly going into a world of more streets and screens and walls, and nothing around us is alive. In fact, if it's alive, we call in the exterminator and we spray it because it was moving. I mean, that's how much things we've left alive in our environments. And yet, literally, like I said, we're turning back the clock here before we used to be surrounded by an environment that was wholly or predominantly alive. I mean, the deadest thing you could find might be a fallen tree or a cliff face. And given any amount of time, that tree is a burrow. It has things crawling through it, growing over it, planting their roots into it. You know, so that log, which was alive and then died, became life again. And that cliff face is now a rookery. And little birdies have found a way to put a small um, living space on any of the smallest little ledge or, or, or way to attach to that. And, and moss is growing and, 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 and plants are, are burrowing their own roots down to the cracks of the rocks. And so even the deadest things become live again in that world we left behind. Is it possible that there's a connection that being a small person in the corner of the giant landscape before the trees and the canyons made us understand our place in this world and that when we think we're big and now we're in the canyons of our own buildings that block out the sun, we've changed our perspective in a way that will slowly warp us out of our humanity. So in, in spite of that sort of... Uh, quandary on my part about uh, human direction and sociology, there are lots and lots of studies about the value of nature and its ability to um, ground us, give us life perspective, uh, increase our warmth and sociability, bring down our barriers, uh, facilitate human connection, and, and basically all sorts of physiological health. Our primary focus has always been the, the mental health and wellness, and the social enhancement quality. So it's kind of like we're trying to produce everybody's warm green living room where we're all going to want to naturally go. So we would like to see this be a, a really superlative experience and a wonderful uh, social gathering and consciousness raising place that then, after it's worked out and laid out, could be emulated and reproduced all across the country and maybe even further. The overall effect, because there's no overhead lighting in the dome itself. There's overhead lighting in the, in the offices and in the, in the conference room and the, there's floods on the waterfall and there's certainly a performance uh, light bar or light arch for the uh, performance area, but the dome itself is illuminated with outdoor garden path lighting. It maintains that ambiance of being a, uh, an open green space. Um, I would say the dome itself does that as well because you have large clear panels to the sky, the night sky, the daytime sky, and the, uh, the structure that holds those panels is very light, like a butterfly wing. So you, even the walls themselves don't feel like they're enclosing you. You know, you're just looking out. You can always drop in on the biodome. It's open from morning to night and people you know will be there. And then people you don't know you can meet or something interesting is going on and you can learn or you can use the Wi-Fi and get in touch with other people all over the world. But it's, it's there and it can be seen and it's not like the old greenhouse that got just bulldozed away 
because nobody knew that that treasure was on campus in a way that a gigantic biodome will make very clear. This is something that should be uh, really exciting and aspirational to all the students here on campus and, and the administrators and the community because uh, we have a chance to create something beautiful, something transformative, and something very essential in this point in time going forward. And, and so it's sort of a, a quiet time. Maybe there'll be a, a lecture or something, but overall it's just come on in, spend some time, immerse yourself in the green. And that's it for our show. Thank you to our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, general manager, Jeremy Whiting, and programming director, Amber Konetsky. And as always, thank you to you, our listeners. This episode marks just about the halfway mark for season 12. If you are interested in going back and listening to our archive of old stories, feel free to check out the website at impact89fm.org. And of course, if you're interested in what's going on next week, you can tune back in at 1030 on Sunday, and we'll see you here next week. You've been listening to The Undercurrent. <laughs>